there's some great research and around and some great studies that have been done about creativity. And the most famous study of which I think was done by Dr. George Land, a guy who did some work for NASA in the 90s. And he basically was trying to apply what he called a creativity test. Like how do we actually how do we actually apply whether people have the creative skill set, not whether they're creative or not, but whether they have the skill set. And um, he basically did a test and the end results were that 98% of five-year-olds were considered at a genius level of creativity on his on his measurement. But by the time it dropped to 10-year-olds, it dropped to 30%. Wow. 15-year-olds, it dropped to 12%. And most alarming at all, adults, people over 18, 2%. <laughs> So it, li- it had literally swung the other direction. 98% of five-year-olds are considered at a genius level created create, of creativity, but only 2% of adults. We are all inherently creative because when we are young, that's how we learn. We, we are creative because we learn language. We are creative because we're given crayons to draw with, blocks to play with, build things out of, and we, we learn to be creative there. And then what happens is we unlearn it, um, unfortunately. And so we've got this misconception, which again is one of those big myths that starts from a child. Children is you're either born creative or you're not. And I know you agree with me on this, is that it's absolute bullshit to say that you're born creative or not. Creativity is a learned skill and we all have it naturally. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills and their money and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests every minute of every day. We're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. Thanks for listening, and now let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. What's the greatest skill and ability that you're going to need to survive and thrive in our radically uncertain and dynamically changing world? No, it's not speed and responsiveness. No, it's not effectiveness or efficiency. These are measures of compliance and conformity in a never-ending race to the bottom. And this is not a race that you want to continue to be in. You need to develop skills that will separate you from the masses, not make you part of them. Over the last century, the world has become a series of factories that started with blue-collar manufacturing and has now permeated insidiously across white-collar services. We've seen work become increasingly specialised and broken down into smaller and smaller components that eventually anyone can do like a battery hen on a conveyor belt. Or worse still, can be done by a robot or machine or algorithm that will eventually replace you. So, on the contrary, if you want to not only survive but thrive in the days ahead, 
you need to become creative to be able to connect, design and create. To do things that AI, robots and battery hens will never be able to do. Your creativity will be the quality that will separate you, protect you and propel you to greater things in the rapidly changing days ahead. Your creativity is going to be the make or break skill of the future. As Seth Godin was famous for saying, you need to decide if you're going to be a chef, a cook or a bottle washer. Chefs get to design and create new and exciting dishes and get paid the big bucks. Cooks follow recipes created by the chefs and they don't get paid very well. Bottle washers just do one thing that anyone can do and hardly get paid at all. You need to become a creative chef, not end up as a bottle washer. So are you creative? Some of you will say yes, but I can hear a lot of you say no. Creative? Who, me? No, I can hear you say. I was never good at art or drawing when I was at school. And this is a big part of the problem and where the problem actually starts. Because many of the, many of the opinion that being creative is a talent that you're born with rather than a skill that you develop. Many of us close our minds to creativity when we're told at school that we couldn't draw or we weren't good at art or drama. And once we close our minds to creativity, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that's exacerbated by the ever-increasing compliant and conformist world that engulfs us in every aspect of our lives. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that Australia is one of the most over-regulated, over-limited and over-compliant and conformist countries in the world. And our individual and collective creativity is its greatest victim. And this conformist and compliant approach to life starts at school, where teaching is reduced to appealing to the lowest common denominator, and anyone who asks questions or tests the edges is ostracised, isolated and condemned. The result? It's easier and you get more rewarded and get in less trouble for just towing the line. Naturally curious and creative kids get their questioning minds thrashed out of them until it's just a dull, quiet murmur. And this creative void is further reinforced by the fact that most of us in the Western world are comfortable, and being comfortable is often the enemy of creativity. But our perceived level of comfort is short-sighted and will be short-lived. Like frogs in a boiling pot, we don't even realise that the water is gradually getting warmer and eventually will be cooked. Compliance, conformity and comfort open the door for us to become even smaller cogs in even bigger grinding wheels. Shifting us from chefs to cooks to bottle washers slowly but surely without us even being aware or realising that it's happening. As Earl Nightingale said back in the mid-1900s, anyone with a good steady job who's familiar with their work and surroundings can go along pretty well from day to day without doing any creative thinking at all. And unfortunately, most of us have a tendency to do no more than we have to. And Nightingale goes on to challenge us all when he questioned, have you ever given much thought to the idea that the spoils of life go to the risk takers? 
If you think about it, you'll come up with the same solution he arrived at, where he cites a survey that indicated that 98% of people are looking for security in their work. That is, they're mainly interested in losing themselves deep in the warm, nourishing viscera of some large company or institution. But these are not, as a rule, the creative risk-takers. They're more the play-it-safers. And while they can have good working lives, the chances are against them of hitting the jackpot. Now, the reason he says this is because this sort of life, as a rule, doesn't encourage anyone to do much more than they have to do. But the person who risks their spare time creating and writing a book, painting pictures, fiddling with inventions, or continuing their education is generally the one who advances beyond others. And the person who risks all of their time to a goal that they want to reach, on a dream in their hearts that stakes their family's livelihood upon their own creative brains and the proper use of their time, and tackles the world single-handedly, they are the creative risk-takers who enjoy the spoils in life. As Nightingale says, he's not talking about the impractical dreamers or stargazers, He's talking about men and women of action who get out and raise the dust in the world. They might make some mistakes and they might be snickered at by friends and relatives of a more conservative bent, but they'll usually make the grade if they stay the course long term. These are the creative risk takers who make up 2% of the population. And since they're generally working on creating ideas that improve the lives of the remaining 98%, the odds swing favourably to their side. The creatives devote a lot of their time to thinking. Conversely, people with good steady jobs who are familiar and comfortable with their work and surroundings generally go from day to day without doing any creative thinking at all. And, as Nightingale said, we have a tendency to do no more than we have to. Anyone who spends a good deal of their time thinking and creating is going to come up with good ideas on occasion. The law of averages is definitely on their side. And if you think about it for a minute, you realise that they only need a few or maybe even one really good idea to succeed. So the more you think about it, the more it becomes obvious that what appears to be the risk taker really isn't nearly as big a risk taker as you might imagine, as the cards are stacked pretty well in their favour. And Nightingale concluded by saying that life is full of hidden contradictions. And one is that if you think you're playing it safe... You really aren't. And the person who seems to be taking the greatest risks, considering the law of averages, is actually playing it the safest. They're ensuring their future. And those that do well in the world who are creative and willing to take calculated risks are also those who've managed to overcome the fear of the laughter, scepticism and the ridicule of others. They're resilient to the opinions of others. Any time you attempt to create anything new in which you risk failure, you run the risk of having people laugh at you. As an example, many years ago, a college professor in America worked for many years on a creative new invention. He tramped all over the states trying to interest investors in his device for making the human voice travel along a wire. Now many laughed at him and thought he was idiotic. They scoffed that it was impossible for the human voice to be carried along a wire and heard many miles away. But Alexander Graham Bell refused to be laughed out of it. And every time we use a phone, we salute him. The man who stayed on course despite the laughter of millions 
that were laughing in derision. He remained undeterred because he knew that sceptical laughter could not hurt him one iota. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote that Pythagoras was misunderstood and Socrates and Jesus and Luther and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh to be great were misunderstood and unappreciated. We tend to forget that the greatest creative people, the greatest writers, the greatest teachers, were for the most part in violent disagreement with their times and the way things were being done. So it's clear that people who play it too safe, too compliant, too conformist, actually take the greatest risks in life. And this is going to become even more so in the radically uncertain days ahead. A world where taking creative calculated risks will actually offer you the greatest security. If we spent half as much time learning how to, cre- to take creative risks as we spend avoiding them, we wouldn't have nearly so much to fear in our lives. Throughout history, it continues to be proven in all walks of life that the most successful people are the creative risk takers. Now, by that I mean they risk believing in their own creative ideas, striking out towards their own goals, standing up for what they believe to be right, and they take the risk of being different and standing out from the crowd when they really believe in something. Now, there's an old sailor's truism that when the storm comes up, smart ships in the harbour head straight out into the raging open sea because staying in the wrongly perceived safety of the harbour means a storm can drag their anchors and they wind up shipwrecked on the beach or the breakwater. So what can appear to be creative risk-taking is often the most intelligent course to follow. It leads to safety and security. While what would appear to be the safest course of action can often end up in disaster. And a more recent insight into this point can be deducted from Apple's 1997 Think Different campaign where Steve Jobs began with these words. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So are you ready to get creative? Your future's going to depend on it. But what is creativity? Well, the dictionary defines creativity as the ability to make new things and think of new ideas. (laughs) What a boring definition. There's certainly no creativity in that definition of creativity. It certainly doesn't scratch the surface of what I consider to be creativity. So I went hunting down Google rabbit holes and I found a much better description by Jonathan Tilley, who uncovered research that asked hundreds of people how they define creativity And this is what they said. Creativity is a feeling. Creativity is a force. Creativity is a secret. 
Creativity is love. Creativity is God. Creativity is the source. Creativity is an energy that gets caught up in time and space and flows through us, yet also carries us. Creativity is an entity like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. You just know it's there. Creativity needs sacred space. Now we're cooking. So how do we get creative and come up with new ideas? Well, if we now know that creativity and idea generation is critical to our future, and we now know what creativity is, how do we get creative and come up with new ideas when many of us don't believe that we're even creative? How many times have you heard yourself or others saying, I just don't have a creative bone in my body? And when someone says we need to get creative and come up with new ideas, what's the general response? Yep, you guessed it. Let's have a brainstorming session. But is this really the best way to get creative and generate new ideas? Well, as, a, as you're about to hear from today's special creative guest, Wade Kingsley, brainstorming is bullshit. Yes, BS is BS. In a keynote presentation that Wade gave in the UK a couple of years ago, he revealed that brainstorming was created over 70 years ago by Alex Osborne, who was an advertising guy in New York, and in 1948, he put together a technique which has been popularised as brainstorming. The trouble with brainstorming techniques as creative idea generators is that they're fundamentally flawed. There's a heap of science and a heap of quality research that confirms that BS is indeed BS. Why? Well, let's tap into Wade's presentation, where he works through the generally accepted myths surrounding brainstorming as the rules of brainstorming are largely the same, as follows. Rule number one, people are more creative when they're in a group. BS. The science tells us, in studies dating back to as far as 1987, and has been overwhelmingly proven that people create more innovative ideas when they're on their own. I'm certainly much more creative when I crawl into my mental cave and create that sacred space where I can explore and tap into ideas uninterrupted. Creating these podcasts and intros is a perfect case in point, where I retreat from the world to crystallise my thoughts and get creative. Let's move on to brainstorm rule and myth number two. Quantity is more important important than quality. I'm sure you've been in a brainstorm where someone has said, we need lots and lots of ideas and, it, and this is really important. BS. The science says that as the quantity of ideas increases, the quality of the idea decreases. The reason you're having a brainstorming session is that you want to come up with really good ideas But the trouble is, we get lost because what usually happens is that one person, who's usually not the most creative but isn't the most confident and outspoken, will go first in the BS session and everyone goes along with it. And what happens after that is largely iterations of groupthink because no one wants to look silly. And the person who's the most confident has gone first and has told you their idea And what happens after that is that everyone's trying to compete and you think you've just got to get more and more out. No, we don't want quality in an an idea session or a brainstorm. 
We want quality. But brainstorming rules keep telling us we need more. Brainstorming rule number three is that it's better to defer judgment and have an open mind during a brainstorm. <clears throat> BS. No, it's not. Why? Because we know a bad idea when we hear one. If you're in a BS session and someone says, wouldn't it be great if we blah, 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 and instead of going, no, nah, it's never going to happen, we remain polite and respond, hmm, that's really interesting. Can we work on that some more? But our instinct tells us straight away that it's just not going to work. Psychological studies have proven that it's overwhelmingly the case that we ignore our gut instincts. And if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink, you'll know that our immediate gut feel instinct, or blink as he calls it, is generally proven to be right. But we look for ways to rationalise outside of that because we just don't trust our instincts. We think, hmm, maybe there's something more here. And the rules of brainstorming compound that. We mistakenly think that we've got to be really careful and polite. But we're not there to be polite. We're there to get great ideas. The final myth and rule of brainstorming is that good ideas can come from anyone. <coughs> BS. No, they don't come from anyone. Yes, it's great to be inclusive and invite Doris from an accounts department to join in your marketing brainstorm to make her feel part of it but it's unlikely she's going to have a great marketing idea. The reason this is important to understand is that the overwhelming evidence is that people who create more innovative ideas have been practising their craft in their areas of expertise for many, many years and often since childhood. So don't get people in the room or in a session just to be polite. In summary, researchers have spent decades looking into brainstorming and the overwhelming evidence is that traditional brainstorming methods, based on the rules we've discussed, is one of the least effective ways to be creative and one of the worst ways to generate good quality ideas. But the trouble remains that despite this research, which has been around for many years now, it's ignored because we just don't know how to create ideas apart from brainstorming. So if brainstorming is no good at stimulating creativity and generating ideas... What do we do? Well, this is where today's guest, Wade Kingsley, comes to your rescue. He says that there really are only two ways we generate ideas. The first way is by ourselves, and the second is with other people. So let's whet your appetite by starting with ways you can generate or create ideas on your own. Like a chef, you need to start with ingredients. It's not starting with a blank page. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, Let's start with a blank page. No, Wade confirms that this is the worst thing you can do and anyone who's looked at a blank page trying to create ideas will agree with him because you sit there at your computer with nothing on it or a pad with nothing written on it and the fear and the anxiety of trying to have to come up with an idea is overwhelming. Chefs don't go into the kitchen and invent vegetables. They don't go, well, you know what? I'd really love to create a carrot. What they do is, they take a carrot and maybe some meat and some stock and spices and they use those ingredients to create something new. What you want to do when you're creating is to start with things. So if you want to start with something in terms of generating ideas, find bits that relate to it. So if I'm trying to create this podcast introduction on creativity, 
I immerse myself in as many creative ingredients by going down rabbit holes on Google and reading and listening to as many YouTube videos, blogs, podcasts and books on the subject to get my creative juices flowing. If you start with nothing, you're not going to get the most inspirational idea. As a chef, you need to start with some related ingredients that are going to help you start to combine them in different ways and create a new meal. The second thing is to go for a walk, a run, a ride or a drive. Have you ever had a a great idea when you've been walking, riding or driving? Why? While your eyes are concentrating on the path or the road ahead, your mind is free and you can channel your thoughts. Whether you're sitting in traffic and bored or you're out in the countryside, what you tend to notice when you're out and about and mobile is that the ideas just appear in front of you. You're creating an environment where you can be more creative on your own. Albert Einstein was famous for coming up with his best ideas and solving his biggest problems when he went for a walk. Another creative approach is to just have a hot shower. Getting in the shower is really important in the same way that driving an exercise is because there's that sensation of warm water on the back of your neck that gets your brain cells humming. And you're standing there and you can relax and the ideas just come to you. Simply closing your eyes and letting your imagination run right is also a very effective way to generate new ideas. It's one of the reasons that I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes, so that I can take time out and just let the creative juices flow. The last approach to generating great ideas on your own is to start by asking and posing questions rather than trying to answer them. As Eugene Genesco famously said, it's not the answer that enlightens, but the question. And Sir Francis Bacon observed that a prudent question is one half of wisdom. It's really critical that when you sit in a space where you're trying to create an idea on your own, that you start with a list of questions. Because what we often find is that the anxiety-provoking thing with creative thinking is you're trying to answer a question and you don't know what the answer is yet, but you put the pressure on yourself by thinking, I must try and find an answer to this. But start with asking better questions. This is how I create these podcast intros. I start by coming up with a list of questions that I know that you're looking for answers on, and then I craft my discussion from there. And my interviews with the guests always start with coming up with the best questions that I can ask them. Find a question you can ask that can start the creative process again. It's the reserve of reverse of blank page thinking and Wade talks more about this later in our discussion today. When it comes to creating ideas with others, Wade also has some great techniques and these include Google stalking the internet on a journey of discovery to generate inspiration and initial ingredients, working in a duo so that the power of two and the bounce of creative pairs generate synergies where one plus one doesn't equal two it equals 11. Because for every Steve Jobs, there's always a Steve Wozniak. It's why my awesome wife Sonia and I work so well as a great yin and yang and come up with some great ideas together. The next approach is what Wade calls ideas and beer sessions with the relaxing power of alcohol. Oh yeah, can't wait to do one of those. And finally, 
need to change the scene and scribble on the back of a serviette. To summarise these individual and working with others approaches to getting creative, Wade uses the acronym IDEAS, that's I-D-E-A-S, in two ways so that it's easy for you to remember. On the individual creativity front, ideas can be broken down into ingredients, drive, exercise, ask and shower. And on the working with others front, ideas becomes internet, duo, eyes closed, alcohol and scene. Now I'm not going to go into the details of them any further as we discuss a number of them during our great conversation today. So let me give you a quick rundown on Wade Kingsley's creative pedigree. Wade's a creative coach who's been helping bring out the creative potential in people now for over 25 years. He's the founder of the Ideas Business, a company that helps you use creativity to solve problems through workshops and facilitation of ideas sessions. And after high demand for Wade to teach his creative methodology, he recently launched the Creative Champions course. Prior to launching the ideas business, Wade was general manager at Visium Melbourne, a media agency that's part of the Densu Aegis Network. He also founded the studio, the internal creative services team at Southern Cross Old Stereo. He's also the former ideas director and marketing and promotions director at Nova Entertainment. Wade has spoken about creativity at conferences and events in Australia and around the world, including the famous brainstorming is bullshit keynote that I've referred to and drawn to and drawn on in this intro. Now, in our very creative conversation today, Wade's on a mission to create more creatives. And he answers your burning ideas and questions and queries, including how do you define creativity and ideas generation? Is creativity and ideation a natural talent or a developed skill? What separates a creative champion from a non-creative conformer? What are the core skills of creative champions, including the importance of curiosity, connections and courage? How can everyone become more creative? How can you learn to ask the best questions? How can you keep your creative skills engaged and active? We discuss the interesting concept of who luck? He details why we need to develop a curious questioning mind and the importance of developing wise up questions. Wade discusses the benefits of pushing yourself off the creative cliff. We cover why his motto, if you don't ask, you don't get, has been fundamental to his success. And he walks us through the nitty gritties of good creative ideas, approaches and processes. Now, if you want to take your creativity and ideas generation to the next level, you can reach out to Wade and work with him and the ideas business team to reignite your creative practice by doing the Creative Champions course. Just go to creativechampionscourse.com forward slash course or click the link in the show notes. And before we get into the interview, if you want to free up more time for creativity and living life on your own terms, property investment can empower you to live by design just as it's done for my wife Sonia and I and the other 1,800-odd investors that we're helping on the journey to financial freedom. To find out how you can get started in property investment or how to become a better investor if it isn't working for you, 
Join me live on our unique Know How Property Freedom Flight program, where I'll personally guide you through my proven process for property investment and lifestyle success. To book your ticket or to find out more, just go to knowhowproperty.com.au forward slash freedomfighters, or just click the link in the show notes. Now, everything is possible if you're creative, and as you'll hear today, everyone can be creative, and your future success will revolve around how creative you become. And as Jonathan Tilly said so well, sometimes we need a gentle push. Sometimes we need a good kick in the butt. So let me be that for you today. If you're looking for permission from yourself to become creative, I want to give you what Brené Brown calls a permission slip. You can write yourself permission slips for things that you've always wanted to do or become. So take this creative permission slip and put it on your vision board or carry it in your back pocket, put it in your wallet or your purse, or make multiple copies of it and share it with strangers and friends alike. And on your permission slip, it says that I give you permission, the ultimate green light, to listen to what creativity is trying to tell you and to create something truly spectacular and then share it with the world. What are you waiting for? Go and create. And to get creatively inspired and to get started, enjoy my high-energy and entertaining chat with Wade Kingsley. Welcome, Freedom Fighters. Now, in our current climate of the all-pervasive, comfortable compliance and conformity that we find ourselves in, many of us feel like we're shrinking interchangeable cogs in the world's big grinding wheels, where AI, robots and mass automation are breaking the world of work down into ever-decreasing, dumbed-down, interchangeable parts. And I believe that there's one quality and skill that will separate both the individual and collective winners from the losers in the days ahead, and that's our creativity and the quality of our ideas. So to help open your ears, your minds and your hearts to the exciting world of ideas and design thinking, which is something that's always been a driver for me as an architect, a musician and a writer, we're joined today by a leading creative coach and a celebrated ideas man, Wade Kingsley. So welcome and let's get invested, Wade. Thanks, Bushy. How are you? I'm really good, mate. Uh, and I didn't realise until we had a quick chat uh, in the green room, that uh, we're probably only a stone's throw from each other. Uh, you're you're in Ryan, Victoria, and I'm not too far away in Balnowring at the moment. It's a bit like that. I, I feel like if I could stand on the roof and sort of look in your direction, I'd, I'd probably find you. <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of an open space here on the Mornington Peninsula, but that's why we love it. Exactly right, mate. It's uh, I, I come from the Florio in in South Australia, and uh, uh, we've been spending some time here with family, and uh, it's a very similar part of the world. It's beautiful, actually. You've got the coast and the wineries and the restaurants, and yeah, it's a not a bad place to spend some time. Absolutely, and it sort of reminds me of my childhood a bit. Growing up uh, in Adelaide, we spent our holidays on the peninsula down at Goolwa. Uh, my grandparents had a shack down there, and we used to love the the long weekends and the summer holidays and that sort of peninsula lifestyle. So we've we've taken what we liked as kids, or I certainly had as kids, and. Um, my wife and I started our family down here on the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot, mate, and we'll, we'll dig into some of that shortly. But uh, sort of to kick things off, I'd love you to tell us who you are, what you do, and most importantly, why you do what you do, Wade. 
Well, I'm glad you said why, because why is my favourite question, Bushy? I feel like we're going to have a few why questions in our conversation today. No fear. Uh, <laughs> so my uh, name is Wade Kingsley, and as you said in the introduction, I'm a creative coach. And um, I guess what I really do is I help people be their best creatively. Uh, and I don't—I didn't realise I did that until very recently. Actually, I'm—I'm I'm in my mid forties, and um, I grew up in Adelaide. And when I was younger, I actually wanted to get into radio. Radio was my passion. And um, Adelaide, growing up in the sort of the eighties and nineties, had a lot of great radio stations and a lot of great radio personalities and performers. And um, I just had this dream of getting into radio. And I don't know if you can tell this by my voice, Bushy, but I didn't probably have the best radio voice. Um, <laughs> I, didn't have the, I didn't have the deep baritone kind of sound that uh, I actually went to the, the Vaughan Harvey radio school. And for those who have Adelaide, Vaughan Harvey had the deepest voice of anyone you could ever imagine ever. Um, and it honestly sounded like, I don't know, someone, some big bad wolf talking to Mickey Mouse when I spoke to him because <laughs> my, my voice is of the higher range. Um, and I got into radio, I think, because I just liked the creativity. I liked the feeling that what people were doing was effectively making things up. You know, they were having fun playing music. And as a kid, as a teenager, you know, like, like most of us at that age, we get into music and love it. Uh, but I really liked the creativity. I liked the sense that they were doing things that were exciting on the radio. And there was the theatre of the mind and there was the imagination and the fun. And uh, I quickly decided that yeah, radio was for me, but the minute I kind of got involved, I realised the on-air side wasn't for me. And I fell into kind of more producing behind-the-scenes sort of roles. So what they sort of tend to call in the radio industry is programming roles. You're not, not computer programming in that sense, but you're kind of deciding on the output and helping cast the presenters and choose the music and things like that. And I was very lucky to, to fall into a work environment in a, in a radio station in Adelaide called 5AA, which was a talkback station. Uh, and that showed me there that my, my real true love, I think, was helping the creators be better themselves. And what I did from that point at sort of age 18, 19 uh, through to age 45 now was go on a journey of helping people with creativity in the environment I was in. Uh, that the radio environment is full of creative people. Uh, spent a good uh, sort of almost 20 years in radio, particularly through uh, the Nova network. For any any listeners who know the Nova radio stations, I was probably one of the foundation members of that, that group. Okay. Uh, and then uh, went to a media agency for a while and helped the team there be better at creating ideas for marketing for clients. And uh, then went back to for a little stint in radio with the Osterio Network, which is Triple M and, and the Hit Network, and then started my own business um, because I hit 40, and as people do when they hit 40, they start going, right, what's this all about, this life thing? What do I want to do? And, you know, I didn't have the money for a sports car, so I didn't go down that path. <laughs> uh, I probably could have gone for a hair transplant thinking back on it because I certainly was follically challenged. <laughs> but I didn't. I, I decided that it was a good time, you know, being 40 and – um, in debt uh, and with young kids to go out on a limb and start my own business. And it's turned out to be probably the best decision I think I've ever made from a professional sense. Yeah, brilliant. Well, sort of circling back through th that time, I'd sort of, you sort of mentioned that you were attracted by, you know, the apparent excitement and fun of radio from a, a very early age. 
the uh, would have been an interesting road to get in it though, because it's a fairly. I, I would have thought, and I don't know much about that arena way, but I would have thought it's fairly competitive. Uh, yeah. How did you work your way in? Well, it is it is competitive, and and I think that I had two things going for me um, at that age. One is, and and most of us do when we're sort of you know late teens into early twenties. Um, I had enormous amounts of confidence, probably not warranted or earned, but I definitely <laughs> felt like I could do anything. And that sort of belief came from both my my mother and my grandmother, who are the sort of the primary influences in my life, who instilled in me a sense of if you want it, you can do it. Um, nothing was a barrier. And so uh, I kind of took that belief through my senior school years. I, I wasn't great at school in terms of discipline for learning. I, I was a you know, all my reports said could have done better uh, because I, I basically took the path of least resistance if I could do the least amount of work I did. Um, but I was always knew what I wanted to do. I knew, knew radio and media was for me. So I really focused in on media studies. So the first thing I think I had going for me in getting into radio was the confidence that I could do it. It didn't, it didn't occur to me that I couldn't do it. And the second thing I had going for me was an enormous amount of um, what is called who luck. And who luck is the luck of people you happen to find in your orbit, um, the relationships you make, the, the people that you meet. And I was working at the time at a TAFE college. I was doing an admin internship uh, at a place called Regency Park TAFE. And yep. the uh, one of my colleagues there said to me, hey, look, you, you're interested in radio, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I love, really love radio. And she said, oh, my brother's a news director at, at this radio station, 5AA, and they're just looking for people to work on weekends. And she gave me his number and I gave him a call and, and went in and did a trial. And, you know, from that trial onwards was sort of look back 20 years later and I'd done 20 years in radio because quickly the weekends became, you know, not just one shift on the weekend, it was two shifts on the weekend. And then I was working during the week. So I was sort of at that age working seven days a week while all my friends were out partying. I was working yeah. uh, because I was doing something I loved from the get-go. And, and radio is a competitive industry and often what happens is you have to do a uh, a tour of the country. You kind of end up in country radio stations or regional radio stations for a long period of time. But I was very lucky that I got my first station in my hometown. And, and the bigger piece of who luck was I walked into 5AA, which had just been sold by the state government to a consortium called the Daily Mail Group from the UK. And the guy heading up the Daily Mail Group consortium in Australia was a guy called Paul Thompson, who actually started the Austereo Network, which is SAFM and and those stations, right. and um, he started this, and, and the view was that 5AA would be the first station in a network, which then became Nova. Um, and so I happened to not only find a job, my first job in radio at a radio station in my hometown, which was rare, but to have one which was basically just being taken over by a guy who was about to build a national network created a massive amount of opportunity for me, which I'm very grateful for over the next 20 years. Yeah, and all of those stations that you've mentioned, of course, being an Adelaide boy, I know pretty well and uh, <laughs> very well, in fact. And you're probably around on the days with, with Baz and Pilko and and uh, all of those guys, were you? Is that, uh... Absolutely, yeah. yeah I, I, I was actually Baz's panel operator for a couple of years when he did the breakfast show on 5AA, so I was <laughs> pressing the buttons and and uh, queuing up all the recorded material and putting phone calls to air and, and working in that environment. And Pilko, too, is probably you know someone I still have a relationship with today in, in terms of his generosity and his mentorship. And that, that was the other thing I found really interesting, Bushy, at starting, you know, I was 19 
I was very much wet behind the ears, but again, I had that kind of confidence. Um, and I, I wasn't afraid to ask people for advice. I, I, I absolutely wanted to soak it all in. I, I saw it as a on-the-job internship. Because I didn't go to university, um, I really thought this is my chance to learn. And, and that's why I worked seven days a week for a couple of years. That's why I hung around longer than I was being paid to do. I, I absolutely wanted to soak it up and learn because I I sort of, I think maybe I realised there was this sort of flash in the bottle moment here where I've got these legends of the industry in the corridors with me, you know, people who I previously would have gone, you know, and this is a Ad, very Adelaide comment, but gee, they're really big celebrities, they're big <laughs> names and why, why would they want to spend any time with this, you know, 18-year-old kid who, who's ne never going to have a career on the air, why, why would they spend time? But they're all very generous with their time. I ask lots of questions. I'm a, I'm a curious person by nature. Um, and I soaked it all in uh, immensely. Well, I, I, let, let's jump on that right now because I, I think this is a, a, a trait that we don't see enough of because asking questions gets almost thrashed out of us at school, mm. uh, and, and a lot of parents get sick and tired of why, why, why. <laughs> uh, I was one of those annoying little shits who, and I still am, by the way, <laughs> Who uh, and hence why I, I love the podcast routine because I've got a, an open license to keep asking why until uh, yeah we get to the bottom of it. But it, it was that something that was just natural in you, or, or was was that that continuous asking curiosity something that uh, uh, you you developed, fostered, or did, can you talk? I'm going a long way back, I know, but uh, what was your memory of how that emerged? Well, I mean, I, I knew I was a curious kid because I think I was told I was on lots of occasions. And I, I don't mean that I was told necessarily in a positive way. I think I was told in the way that, you know, you, you realise now for those of us who've got kids and I've got a, a nine and a 10-year-old, um, is that they ask lots of questions naturally. You know, that's how kids learn. They learn by asking um, everything from, you know, why is the sky blue to... Why is mummy kissing that other man over there? You know, there's there's lots of questions. Maybe that's just my kids. There's lots of questions. There's lots of questions that kids ask, and and it's so it's a it's a natural innate thing that all kids have. And and what I was lucky to have um, in my parents, um, even though I was an annoying person, to ask questions, is that I think they, you know, perhaps through gritted teeth at times, persisted because I pretty early on said, listen, I think I want to be on the radio. And I even paired that up with being a journalist. I thought, oh, a being a journalist would be good, you know, maybe reading the news or something like that. Hmm. And so because I sort of proclaimed that early, you know, I'm thinking like I was seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that age. When I went and asked questions then, when I was really curious and asking stuff, it was tolerated and entertained because it's kind of like, well, he wants to be a journalist. They ask questions, so therefore ask questions. And, you know, you notice it also when you've got, kids that are into stuff. So like my son's into cricket. So naturally anything to do with cricket, you kind of lean into, oh, well, that's because he's into cricket. So we want to foster that. Or my daughter's very artistic with painting. And so you lean into that sort of stuff. So yeah, my, yeah. My, my lean in, I guess, to my parents at that stage was, look, I think I want to do something involving the radio and maybe being a journalist. So I think the, the curiosity was tolerated. But what's really interesting about that is that it, it's a very interesting parental um, uh, part that I've since studied a lot uh, in my own career journey about the role that parents play in promoting curiosity uh, or diminishing it. And, and it usually gets summed up by how many questions you get asked a day, you know, and kids do ask so many questions. But the more we realise that's how we learn and, and the more we can take that question asking ability in adulthood, it, it really is the spark 
that sets creativity going. You know, curiosity is the number one engine. There are other components, but when I work with people about helping them with their creativity and, and helping them with their confidence to be creative, we always start with curiosity because if you're not curious about anything, then that's the engine we need to revive because it's not a something that people have or don't. Curiosity is something that you did have. Everyone had it as a kid. And it's it's whether it's been sort of, you know, beaten out of you or you can bring it back into your adult life and be generally more curious. And I think if you think about creative people in generally or people we kind of in inverted commas say inverted commas say are creative, what happens is we tend to find that those people are very, very interested in lots and lots of things. You know, they're never short of a question at a dinner party. <laughs> you know, they can be seated next to anyone and they'll find a conversation starter. Uh, they're into death metal music and they're into <laughs> Renaissance art and they're into growing vegetables and they're into cooking. You know, th there's just lots of things they're into. And one of the great things that we see happen primarily through the, the problems in education systems is that it gets beaten out of us because we, we're told we have to be curious only about a small amount of things. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you want to be an accountant, then get curious about maths. Like, be be better at maths. Okay, great. At the expense of is the bit that they implicitly say. At the expense of sport, at the expense of art, at the expense of English. Um, you know, why would you bother wasting time learning about these things because it's got nothing to do with being an accountant? And that that's where the trouble starts, um, both in the in the home from parents, but also and mostly through the unfortunate nature of our education system today. Yes, and yes. Uh, we, we could go off into a tangent and spend an hour talking about that subject on its own, I reckon, Wade, but uh, and, and we, I might get you back at a later stage to, to do a deep dive on that because uh, that, that's the unfortunate reality is that our curious natures have been, been belted out yeah. of us. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to sort of uh, go too wide of the mark, but, uh, you know, big corporations and, and whatnot need a compliant workforce mm. and schools are a great place to inculcate that sort of a, a dumbed-down approach to life. Absolutely. Because I mean, you learn, that's where you learn compliance at school. The minute you sit down on that classroom and that first day in, in prep or reception, uh, it's compliance. It's sit down, be quiet, raise your hand, you know, all of those compliance signals which say to the previously adventurous experimental toddler, um, okay, now it's getting serious, you need to conform and it's just such a trapdoor and it's one of those things that if I had a magic wand that can change anything, it would be the education system. So that would be good to discuss at a later date. We'll definitely do that. I'd, I'd love to for you to sort of... Uh, open up a little bit on some of the experiences you've had then across across your journey uh, because clearly uh, they haven't dampened your spirit when it comes to curiosity and the, and the questioning approach that you've adopted to life. And I, I, while that's going to create opportunities, and, and yes, uh, you very smartly, whether you realise it or not, by saying I'm going to be a journo in radio, gave yourself a licence to do that to some degree, I'm sure that would have created its challenges. Can you talk through some of the challenges that it did create and how you overcome them? Because I, I bet you there's a lot of people that are trying to silence that innate curious spirit of yours. Uh, talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I guess there's a couple of things that immediately come to mind. I mean, there were parts of my family that I think 
I would say they were actively discouraging my curiosity, but they certainly didn't help it. I mean, I, I had a childhood nickname of Big Ears. Um, and uh, it's funny because at the time it didn't really, like, I, I don't think I was, you know, upset or offended by it. And the reason I got it was because I loved listening into conversations. Um, I would be the kid that would go to bed um, and for all intents and purposes was asleep, but lo and behold, I'm sitting up at the door listening to the adult conversations because there was something interesting about it for me. You know, it was something, whatever they were talking about um, was was of interest. And so once this was discovered, I got the nickname Big Ears. And I think that when I look back on that, I actually think that's, you know, funny but a little cruel because it kind of made me think that, well, you know, if I was eavesdropping, maybe I would have been a tabloid journalist, but um, it kind of made me feel like that, you know, listening was wrong, you know, and obviously I, I'm not condoning listening into private conversations, but, you know, the, I was curious. I was inquisitive. I wanted to know. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, a, a watch out there to, to say to a child, listen, it's not good to know. It's not good to listen. Mind your manners, behave sort of thing. So that, that was kind of one thing that sort of I kind of fought against this nature, this nature of being curious was wrong. And, you know, we, we carry this through cliches like curiosity killed the cat and don't be nosy. You know, it's kind of embedded in the culture that curiosity or wanting to know equals bad. And then I think I, probably the most um, relevant event in my life was my parents um, divorced when I was nine. And if I think back to that, that was a bit of a pivotal moment for me because I think what happens for children of divorced parents, for the most part, unless there's circumstances which are, are there like alcohol or abuse or other things that are a bit nastier and darker, but for me it was it was it was a divorce um, as a result of of infidelity on one part, and yeah. I think what it made me think a lot was the magic question in life why like i just i just kept thinking why and that, that if i go back to the absolute kind of pivotal moment or the, the the turning point of my curiosity i think it was there because there was this major event that meant there was a before and an after the before was happy joyful blissful now it, it may not have been for my parents from what i know but for me in, in a, as a nine-year-old in a family, I, it felt safe and secure and all those things you want for your kids. Yep. Um, the solid base was there. Um, I had two younger, well, I had one younger sister, another on the way at the time. So mum was actually pregnant when they got divorced. Yes. Um, and so, you know, and I, I ended up being basically mum and me and two sisters. So I was kind of, you know, in inverted commas, the man of the house at age sort of nine, ten. And, and the overriding thing I can remember, and, and to be honest, still probably gets me a bit to this day, is why? Why did that happen? Why did that family dynamic break apart? And then you kind of look through it different lenses. You know, when you're a, a nine-year-old, you look at it through your own selfish lens. Like, you know, why is, why is the family dissolving? I liked that. Um, you look at it as a 45-year-old man and you go, well, I know relationships aren't perfect and things happen and lives change and people's feelings change. So I'm not, you know, I'm not foolish enough to think it's it's sort of just an abstract concept. But if I try and draw the parallel between what was happening in my life at that time and why curiosity became a, a big driver, uh, which I think manifested in creativity for me, was that I was just I was already on the journey of trying to understand things, trying to make sense of things. And we all do in life. We, you know, you don't need to be a child of divorce to ask the big questions of why. That that's questions, those are questions that come up for every one of us very regularly. But I think for me that kicked off a journey of 
trying to understand and trying to get my head around and going a bit deeper rather than just the surface level facts of in, and information. I was looking into the psychology, looking into the behavioural aspects and looking into the emotional impact that it had. That's a uh, very mature approach for a nine-year-old, mate, because I, you know, a lot of kids going through that exercise, particularly at, at that very formative age, uh, focus on well, what have I done to cause this? They they blame themselves because that's you know they they don't have the uh, emotional in- intelligence or or you know the, the develop maturity to see beyond that. Uh, is that something? How, how did you tackle that? Because it it can be you know, it can really rock someone's view of the world, and quite often kids will withdraw or, or go in different directions as a result. It, it doesn't sound like it, that happened to you. Talk to us about your feelings around that if you can. Yeah, well, I mean, I th- obviously I'm doing it now looking through a lens of reflecting back on that time. I, I can't say I wasn't, you know, completely emotionless uh, um, and and removed from it or could look at it in a mature way when I was a nine-year-old. But perhaps what helped is is the fact that I think when you get to about that age nine or ten when you've, and you know, all the child psychology sort of backs this up. You know, you have your formative years where you're establishing that solid base and then everything can, you know, if you've got a solid base, things can build on top of that. And I had a very solid base through to about that age. And probably at that age, you're old enough to kind of conceptually get what's going on, you know, and in, I guess in, in my story, you know, there was a villain. <laughs> uh, infidelity was the cause and therefore it meant this result. Um, and so all of a sudden you go, right, well, he's the bad guy then. Okay. I can get that. I'm, I'm clearly not the bad guy. I haven't done anything wrong here. He's the bad guy. So I can apportion blame slash responsibility there and, and can clearly be angry about that. Um, and so I was probably, you know, gratefully I was protected from that kind of reflecting on myself, self-interest. Interestingly, my wife, um, also went through uh, a situation where her parents divorced. She was a little bit older, but had a, had the opposite experience where she was literally told word for word, you are to blame for us splitting up, which again, <laughs> wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, the marriage broke down because the marriage broke down um, for lots of different reasons. Um, but, you know, she had the experience of the fact that she was blamed for it and, and has had the psychological scars of that ever since. And so I think I was fortunate in, in my story to to be able to be just old enough to understand it, just uh, being protected from the fact that I wasn't the bad guy here, but still had the hurt, still had the anger, still had all those emotions. And and look, to be fair, at age 45, I still haven't made peace with, with my dad who lives somewhere in Brisbane, I think, you know, but haven't had contact and don't choose to for those reasons. So I've probably put it in a box, um, probably, you know, work out whether I open that box one day or not. But it's it's kind of I think it's shaped the perspective I have on some of those things and and particularly when I look at my you know son and daughter who are both around that nine ten age now about the importance of of security and and them understanding perspectives around things happen in life and you have to be able to have a perspective to deal with them. Mm, great learnings there, mate. Uh, very great learnings there, and it, it, it's one thing that I can encourage you to do at some point is is to open that box. And mm. have a chat to your dad because uh, re- regret, uh, whether you see it now or not, uh, does creep up. And it's a Pandora's box in a lot mm, of ways it because it, it opens a whole heap of stuff that is probably buried there that you're not aware of. Uh, but, uh, yeah, w- w- without 
going to left field, I would encourage you at the right time to, to do that because you'd be surprised at uh, what that might do. Um, only, only saying that because I've had a similar experience in the past. So, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Mate. Well, let, let's now jump back into the radio world quickly before we, we dig into what you're doing now and, and the fantastic world of creativity. Uh, I, I'm guessing that, uh, and I'd love you to clarify this, that, that uh, while creativity was really probably underpinning everything you were doing during your years in, in radio, it probably wasn't obviously recognised at that point. Uh, can you can you sort of share with us uh, some of the uh, you know examples you had during that that time? And it would have been a pretty frantic time and a very busy time, from what you what you're telling us. That sort of led you to start to understand that creativity was at the base of everything that you were doing. Yeah, well, actually, it's it's probably a very very much a more recent revelation um, because I think I fell in love with with radio and was very quickly on a career path. And I think that's what sometimes happens for people, particularly around my age, as as far as I understand, is you get to a point in your career and I'd sort of put it in the first 20 years bracket and then the next 20 years bracket. You know, I got got to 20, the 20-year mark in radio and I actually handed in my resignation on that day. Um, And I actually resigned without a job to go to. But there was just something that told me, something in the universe, something in my gut that said, you've done 20, that's a good knock. Um, what do you want to do with the next 20? And didn't know, but knew that that radio wasn't going to be it. But I think what that caused me to do was go, okay, so radio is is the is how it's manifested. I, I thought radio was what I wanted to do for my entire life. If you had said to the 20-year-old Wade, what success looked like in radio would have been being the CEO of a radio network. Um, you know, work, stay in a company, be loyal, work your way up the ladder and, and be the guy that uh, ends up running the show. I like I liked the idea of that. And then um, as you get in it and you do the hard yards and for, for me and my wife, we moved around Australia a fair bit. We lived in Townsville and the Sunshine Coast and Brisbane and Albury-Wodonga and Melbourne and Adelaide and back to Melbourne again, you know, we did a lot of these sort of big city moves that you do in radio when you're part of a bigger company that has lots of locations and the opportunities come up, you take the opportunities. Um, And so it really didn't probably occur to me that really what I was interested in was creativity until I reflected back on it because I just thought it was radio. And then when I sort of started to fall out of love of radio, um, didn't love it as much, um, didn't really like the politics. Well, I kind of felt like that when I was in it, uh, like most things, you kind of don't pay attention to the big rocks. You just kind of do it. You just go, oh, yep, absolutely, happy to do it. The the evaluation for me came with having worked for the same company for so long, uh, a change of ownership. Um, The ownership changed from, you know, I mentioned Paul Thompson earlier. He retired um, and the ownership changed from one company to another and I felt like that the new company was going to go in a direction that didn't really suit me philosophically um, from a structural sense, from an organisational sense. It, it, it was one of those things where I just thought, yeah, you know, I, I sort of equate it a bit to football coaches. I, I, I'm always loath to bring in a football analogy, but it will it'll always happen. <laughs> it absolutely happen. And apologies to the non-AFL listeners. But, you know, the, the Nathan Buckley scenario at Collingwood recently was a similar sort of thing. You get to a point and you go, look, I know this is going to be around a lot longer than I am. 
can I gear myself up for another tilt? Can I go again for another 10 or 20 years that it would take? And because I guess, you know, I'd had young kids and was getting to the age of 40 and there was a change of ownership, I think all of those sort of signs were pointing me into, well, do I really, 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 really want to invest my time and effort into a couple of things? One is the new owners. Do I believe in where they're going or not? That was a question in my mind. I also started to think about, am I am I one of these people that invests all my time making money for someone else? You know, am I, is that the legacy that I want? Do I, do I want to look back on my career when I'm 65, 70 or whatever age I choose to slow down a bit and go, have I invested everything for someone else to make a heap of money off? And am I happy with that? And I think having kids gave me the perspective of like, well, you know what, that, you know, dynasties are started by people. There's no reason I can't start my own thing, whatever that thing is. And maybe I could be investing now my time, my energy, my finances, my resources, uh, everything I can to building a business that one day that if my kids wanted to be part of by their choice, that there was an option available to them, that they could go, yeah, absolutely, I love what dad's doing, we're going to join the firm. Or, you know, even if they use that as a vehicle to get introductions into their chosen industry or do their own thing, there was just something attractive to me about whose legacy am I building here if i'm investing the time and energy into something who's gaining um and i think that gain equation who's winning here uh you sort of start to evaluate the labor that you're putting in not just the physical labor but the mental labor which is a big toll um because you'd never really stop thinking about work particularly when you're at a younger age you learn to balance it a bit older i think but i was i was very heavily invested in everything that the company was doing and then kind of made me go, yeah, maybe I could invest that in myself and my family. Yeah, love it, mate. Love it. And it's it's that questioning process again, that, that underlying reflection exercise that I find a lot of hardworking guys in particular just don't give themselves the space or the time to do. And uh, before you know it, time slipping through the fingers, 15 or 20 years has passed and it's all of a sudden it's that oh shit moment, oh shit. Yeah, and it is, and it's the challenge because I think it creeps up on you. I mean, I, I mean, it's weird this age forty thing. I, I, I'm, there's obviously a psychological basis to it, but I think you're young, you're young enough to still do other things at forty. You, you're not like, gee, I'm starting to, you know, I mean, maybe your back's a bit sore or things like that, or in my case, you're losing some of your hair. But you kind of you do get to a point where you go, look, I'm still young enough to have a have a second swing at this. So is my second swing? in this ballpark or do I want to change sports completely? And I think that, you know, one of the things I kept thinking about was I, I read it somewhere and I, I, I would absolutely give the author credit if I could remember where I read it. But there was this saying that you've got to push yourself off the cliff and I, that just resonated with me and still does to this day. And, and it's still a piece of advice I give to people now who are in corporate roles, who have been in corporate roles for a long time, who have done the corporate travel thing and have done the work up the way up the ladder thing and are putting in the hours and looking, reflecting and looking. I just kind of go, I think there's value in pushing yourself off the cliff because at some point it probably, unfortunately, will happen to a lot of people that they get pushed off the cliff and perhaps COVID has unfairly discriminated on that basis where 
certain industries and businesses have either slowed down, retrenched or, or collapsed completely. Um, the, the, the very true extent of that I don't think we've seen yet. Mm. I think that's still ongoing in, in Australia, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and not everyone gets the option to push themselves off the cliff. You know, it often happens to us. So I, as I said, I, I literally got to that 20-year mark and put in a resignation letter without knowing what was going on, which was extremely scary. I, I said to my wife, are you sure that, you know, this is the right thing to do? And she said, trust your gut. And, and, and the gut was good for me because when you push yourself off the cliff, the only option you've got is to find a parachute. And I had to go, right, so what is it I want to do? Like, how am I going to do it? Where can I be of value? How can I help people? How can I turn being of value and helping people into income? How can I line up those beautiful parts of my life, which are, you know, the passion, the skill, and, and like, how do I do that? And if you don't have to think about it, you don't. You just take the paycheck every month and toddle on your way and perhaps feel a bit sorry for yourself on some days and drive home from work miserable on others. But you, you just... Keep going, and and when you push yourself off the cliff, you've got no choice but to go right. Well, you know, in, I've got bills to pay, I've got mouths to feed. I have to do something. What is it I want to do? And and that was really a strong motivator for me because I'd always been a take the paycheck kind of guy and and be happy to get the pay rises and happy to get the promotion. But when all of a sudden you're staring at a spreadsheet, <laughs> which I did, and went, oh right, so in August I have no money. Okay, uh, what am I going to do about that? Um, there's something about that thrill for me and I know it's not for everyone but for me it was that you know um fight or flight sort of reaction of like right well I just have to I have to get on with it I've got I've got no choice if it is to be it's up to me so I better get on with it yeah I love that yeah. and, and and you're absolutely right uh, for those who I, I think quite naively believe that uh, sitting on the edge of the cliff uh means that they're safe is uh, probably a little bit scary in this current world and you're yeah. better off to to take that leap voluntarily rather than be pushed without uh, being ready for it. But the key thing there, I, I think, too, is how when you take that leap, some of the biggest fears that a lot of people have around that and, you know, being there myself, is, is surviving long enough once you jump off the cliff for your, your business to build up enough momentum to sustain you financially. Yeah. How did you get across that chasm? Well, I, 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 my, my motto really is if you don't ask, you don't get. And I pride myself on asking. I, I asked from the day I walked into a radio station. Well, before that, I asked early on that I wanted to do radio. I asked, I let it be known that I wanted to do radio a job came up. I, I asked about the job. I got into the job. I asked people for help. I, I absolutely no hesitation in saying that that's sort of been my number one strategy, no matter what I've been doing is if you don't ask, you don't get. And so what I found myself doing um, when I started the business was I felt like, well, I'm, you know, I could play the modest Aussie here. You know, we, we're very, we, we're not as bold and brash as the Americans. You know, we're really, Australians are just kind of like, well, I'll just sit back and wait for it to happen, um, and and hopefully people will like me. And it's like you just can't operate like that. So I, I made it really clear when I resigned. Um, the reason I was going was because I wanted to start my next chapter, and by vocalising that, by saying it out loud, by telling people, shouting it from the rooftops that I was, I didn't know what it's going to be. What that meant was that people were saying, "Well, when you think of it, let's have a chat." And I'm like, well, hang on, I don't know what I could do or what value I could add because if I'm not in a radio station, do I have any purpose and do I have any skills and what's it worth? And and so I forged ahead with the strategy of, number one, 
I need to tell as many people as possible that I'm available and can help and, and then let them see if there's a fit. And where I could find a fit myself, I would point it out. Hey, listen, I think I can help you with this. Do you want the help? Uh, or, you know, hey, listen, I've got some spare time. Is there anything I can be doing? I, I didn't sit around waiting for that to come to me. I went to it. Um, and that resulted in the fact that the boss that I resigned to said to me, um, hey, listen, um, if you decide to do your own thing from a creative perspective, if you're going to be a consultant, uh, I'll be your first client, and and which was an extremely generous and fantastic offer. But that, that was a that was a parachute on the way down of pushing yourself off the cliff because it gave me some very short-term financial security as I got underway. Um, but it, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't asked for it, if I had, didn't put myself out there, if I had just sort of skulked off into the shadows and gone, well, radio's been great, have the farewell party, thanks very much, I'm, you know, off to lie on a beach somewhere, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> it, 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 honestly, I believe it wouldn't have happened because I, I'm, I firmly believe that a lot of people can look at you as a commodity and go, well, you're just another foot soldier in the in the employee base or they can go, what skills does this person have? What value does this person bring? What do we think they're good at? And if you can then say, I'm available, I'm interested, or listen, hey, I was thinking about you, I've thought of this um, way I can help, or thought of this thing I could do, or thought of an idea that could help your business, the conversation is the difference. And underpinning all that, Bushy, was that I also knew that I had 20 years of media experience in the bank, and that does not diminish. You know, if I went out on my own and I was a complete failure, if I absolutely fell on my ass and could not make a go of it, could not find a market, could not find customers, could not provide any value, couldn't feed my family, it, it wasn't failure. And it wasn't a whoops, that didn't work. It might have not worked at the time and it might have not worked for a reason. And I'm very grateful and thankful that it has. But my absolute guiding principle was if it all else fails, the 20 years I've banked of experience of building a reputation for being a hard worker, of being building a reputation of being a leader, building a reputation for being able to provide value and add a contribution, I can just go back to the bank and withdraw that and go, hey, there's a job going, I'll go for that job. Yeah, um, love, love, love yeah, it's a lot of, and I think sometimes people get afraid of the pushing themselves off the cliff sort of philosophy or like I, I can tell you, you know, on one hand I can count the amount of friends that sit there and go, gee, I'd love to do my own thing. And the reason they don't, I think, is because they think it's all, they think it's an all or nothing bet. They think that, look, if I'm going to do this, then I'm putting too much at stake, too much at risk. And, you know, obviously the, the more mortgage, you, the bigger the, your mortgage, the more your school fees, you know, obviously those the actual numbers come into play for sure. But, it, you know, in any risk and investment strategy, you look at the point of return, <laughs> you look at, um, from your own time and your own financial investment or your own reputation. And you have to remember that you still have a lot of uh, investment in the bank with the value yet to be realised. And you can just absolutely go at any point and go, well, look, I tried this thing on my own. It didn't work for now. That's okay. I'm all right with that because I can just revisit all the years and all the time and all the education and all the knowledge I've built and the relationships I've built because they don't evaporate. They're still there. They're still in the bank. Yeah, absolutely spot on. You, you touched earlier in our conversation on, uh, you know, you were thinking about what success means and what it looks like to you. Uh, what conclusion did you come to? What, what does sustainable success mean to you, mate? 
Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, from the financial perspective, that which was a was a big driving factor. I'll get to the broader picture on what success looks like in a sec. But from a financial perspective, um, I, I've never been an investor, a financial investor. I don't own shares. Um, I don't own property. I, I did own a property once and sold it, but I, I don't. I don't literally have those kind of assets from a financial perspective that I would go, right, well, I'm a, I'm a successful financial investor. Um, but what I am is a good learner. And one of the things I remember being taught um, when I was within a big corporate environment was trying to understand how companies work, um, how uh, finance for companies work, how cash flow works, how business profitability is determined. I, you know, I, I, even though it wasn't directly in my remit, in my role, I chose to learn about that sort of stuff, not because I could see an actual use for it at the time, but just in case I wanted to know it one day. Mm. And what that meant was when I decided to go out on my own, I I think I treated my career a little bit like an investment portfolio, you know, and this is far more your area than mine. But, <laughs> you know, you, you don't just go, listen, I'm going to put every single cent I have into one income stream. You know, th- I'm putting all the bets on this. This, this is going to pay off. It's going to work. Um, I, I did the same thing. I diversified my skill set. I said, okay, well, what are the things I'm good at? Where could I provide value? Um, I can write a bit. So I could be a, a, a writer. I could be a sort of a copywriter, creative writer. Okay, cool. Uh, what else am I good at? Well, I can facilitate sessions. So I could be a corporate facilitator and do that kind of thing. Um, what else have I done sort of through my radio time? Well, I've worked directly with on-air talent and coached um, and developed them so I could be a coach. And, and so basically I divided up my time and I put my investment of time into all of these different areas because I knew that the market would have to tell me what they wanted me to do, even though I was going to the market and saying, here's the things I can do. Um, some you know, investments mature quicker than others and some take longer. And I, I knew that, well, look, I don't know. I, I don't have enough data to be able to make a call. And so what I've built, you know, my business is now four years old, um, is I've built a diversified time portfolio where, you know, and literally if you Google me, there's, there's a few different versions of me. There's there's Wade Kingsley who runs uh, the ideas business um, who does facilitations of creative sessions. There's Wade Kingsley, the creative coach, who has created the Creative Champions course and you can learn from Wade in a coaching environment. There's Wade Kingsley, the facilitator, who can facilitate a corporate conference for you. Um, and it, to me, they're kind of different brands existing out there, but they're a reflection of the fact that I've diversified my time across different portfolios, if you like, to be able to see which investments pay off sooner and some are growing faster than others. And rather than just go, right, well, I'm Wade Kingsley, this is all I can do, so buy me or not. And I just didn't feel like that was the right approach. So from a from a, from a time perspective and a financial perspective, my, my business has been geared around planting the seeds and seeing which ones grow. From a broader perspective, that question about sustainable success and mm. um, what it is, it, for me, it was all about balance. I mean, you know, I know it's a cliche, but I think when you have the balance, like I work from home, uh, I have a home office and the, it's separate to the house. So I can walk into the house at night and I finish my day's work and I walk into the office in the morning out the back and, you know, I start my day's work. And when my day starts is up to me. Um, you know, yeah. the diary, the, the meetings that go in the diary, I say yes to, you know, when you're in a big corporation and you, <laughs> you look at your diary and it's just full of these meetings and, you know, you know that 90% of them are a waste of time, but <laughs> you, you follow them along, you do the meetings and you realise that someone else is controlling your diary and you're not controlling it. It was the biggest freedom 
I found when I started on my own. It's like, wow, I've got a blank diary. I, de- I decide what goes in it and what, and what doesn't. Um, I have the flexibility to say, listen, I feel like working a few hours on a Sunday. That that suits me. Uh, my, my working rhythms better reflect working for myself because obviously in the corporate environment, you're a slave to the nine to five, eight to six, seven to seven, whatever it might be, um, plus the, the commute times, although they're not so relevant anymore, but that's what I was. Now I'm like, you know what, well, this morning is a good example. I, I, you know, We're speaking in the afternoon at the moment, but this morning uh, I did some calls with a client in North America from about 6.30 till about 8.30 this morning. After that, I went and got a coffee and had some breakfast. Uh, we did a family walk on the beach uh, between about uh, 10 and 11. I came back, um, did some work before our chat You know, this afternoon. So uh, the ability to control my time is what the balance actually means for me. It means that you know I can take holidays not in the school holidays or not at Christmas. I can I can literally cross off my diary and we go away for a weekend as a family or we do things or this Friday I'm just not working. I'm going to do some stuff with the family because it's school holidays. So that, that sort of balance, when people talk about balance, I think there's a theoretical element to it. Um, but for me, sustainable success is about actually living the balance where you can and finding those opportunities. And one of the upsides of COVID, I hope, is this this thing that has always been available to us, which is hybrid working, um, working from different locations, not being chained to the computer at a desk in an office in an open plan environment from hour to hour, from day to day, is I hope that what sustainable success means for a lot of people now is the ability to realise that they're in a bit more control and they can judge their rhythms where they perform best if they've got the ability to work from home or work from a, another location that they take that up. Yeah, love yeah. it. Love that, that uh, and you're absolutely right. I, I, I take for granted because I've been doing it for years. But uh, if you tried to squeeze me back into a, a corporate box now, I, I'd last about five seconds, I think. Yeah, same. Uh, and look, I think you become institutionalised, really. And and when you break out of it, 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 it's like someone actually said to me last week, "Oh, you know, would you ever go back to corporate life?" And look, I've always been a never say never person, but I just can't imagine. I actually can't imagine myself getting up in the morning getting dressed, doing a commute, going to work or working from home, going to all those meetings again, um, you know, it just doesn't feel right. You know, there's something about it that I think I'd, I'd, I think I'd go and run a bakery before I went to a corporate job. <laughs> like, you know, I, I know nothing about bakery. I'm not dismissing bakers at all, but it's not, it's, let's just say I'm not a baker, um, but I would rather do that than, than just fill a suit for the sake of it. Yeah, I've got sort of aligned to that then, uh, you know, looking really long-term now, so I'm going to project right into the future for a minute, uh, with a picture around how you want to live, and it, it sounds like you're to, to a you know, big degree living your ideal lifestyle style now, but there'll, be a, there'll come a point in time where you're uh, wanting to rely less on your, your own earned income to sustain that lifestyle, what do you what do you think you'll invest in in parallel with your business that'll help sustain that cash flow long term? If you put any thought around that, yeah, I have, and and I think because I'm at the very beginning of my journey working for myself and and building building a business, you know, a, a legacy, a, a dynasty, as I sort of sort of jokingly called it earlier. But it's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build something that outlives me effectively, um, is to think about how I can financially sustain that. Um, at the moment, I I pretty much, I wouldn't say I live hand to mouth. I, I think that's probably a little bit blunt, but I certainly 
you know, COVID hit me pretty hard and a lot of my work was in person. A lot of my work is overseas. I I was spending, um, you know, a week every sort of six weeks in the US working with a a couple of clients over there. Mm, Um, So all of a sudden, you know, you kind of like, like everyone, you know, I'm by no means telling a sob story here, but it's, you know, I, I went from seven projects and seven clients in one week to one the next because, COVID meant couldn't do. And then everyone went, oh, hang on a minute, you still can do. You just do it by video and you do it. So, okay, everyone adjusts and you, you do that and get on with it. But I think what that sort of time showed me was I pretty much am a, um, a professional services business. You know, if, if I can deliver the service, then I get paid for it. And it started to get me thinking about the fact that I'm nowhere in the in the vicinity I should be in terms of scalable products. Um the, the e-learning program I've developed, the Creative Champions course, was a result of COVID. Yeah. It was one of those things that I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do a course one day. But it, what I, how I executed that up to COVID was in person. I would do in-person training, in-person workshops. Yeah. And then thought, well, hang on a minute. I can't scale that because I'm the only person that can do it. Well, wait a minute. I can scale that if I'm the person who is delivering it in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I wrote the content, wrote the curriculum, filmed all the, the, the sessions. I built a home studio over COVID. That was sort of my, people were making sourdough. I was making a home studio um, with a green screen and lighting and all sorts of stuff I found online and <laughs> built a little built a little home studio and filmed and edited and, and made these these video content, this, this course uh, myself at home. And um, again, that was a different skill set. I wasn't a particularly good video person um, from a, from an editing perspective or production perspective, so had to kind of learn a lot. And then what I did was go, okay, so I've realised now that the way I can build up some more financial security and independence in my business is to have more scale scalable products. Yeah. One of which is is the online learning. I've got a couple of others in the pipeline that I'm starting to to develop now, but you know, I can't scale, people buy me effectively, I am the business um, and I can't, I can't, unless I can be charging a lot more for what I do, uh, which in an uncertain economic climate is not a great strategy, I have to be able to try and scale myself to different audiences, different languages, different places um, as much as possible. So I've kind of rethought about how I deliver what I deliver and what value I provide. Yeah, love it, love it. And that's uh, that's where I, I guess... You know, it's got to be careful how I say this, but uh, COVID and the the dynamic change that's created uh, in terms of a massive catalyst for creativity, you couldn't get a better one. And it's it's those sorts of massive, what appears like massive obstacles uh, that present the the greatest opportunities. I believe. What, what's your thoughts around that? Oh, absolutely. And look, I I think that. You know, I th- there was an Einstein saying, I think about it, yeah, adversity introduces a man to himself, um, that you you don't know what you can do until you've pushed, you know, and that was part of the pushing myself off the cliff as well. I, I didn't, if you had said to me, could you run a business? I probably would have had the confidence, but not the knowledge. And now someone says to me, oh, would you go and do an MBA? And I'm like, well, why would I do that? I'm running my own business already. Like I kind of, you know, I'm sure I can learn stuff, but I'm actually doing it. I'm actually living <laughs> living an MBA. I'm, I'm learning about marketing and doing marketing, even though I've spent a lot of time in that field. I'm learning about sales funnels. I'm learning about, um, you know, building brands. I'm doing all the stuff that you do and productization and all that kind of stuff. So I think from that perspective, I um, I really feel like what COVID did for me was just sharpen the focus. It was, I was already on the journey, but it kind of meant, hey, listen, you know, 
put yourself in a position where you can't physically go and do something. What does that mean? You know, and I was even doing scenario planning or risk assessments in my own business. It's like, well, what happens if I get injured? You know, what happens if I fall over? What happens if I can't walk? What happens if I can't see? What happens if I can't talk? Um, and when you're the business and, and you're the income stream for the family, particularly, uh, I don't think you can be kind of naive enough to go, oh, she'll be right. <laughs> um, you actually have to, you know, I don't, I don't answer, answer to a board, so I don't have to do a, a risk assessment report to, to stakeholders. But to do it to myself, I'd go, well, what COVID's taught me is if something is taken away that is fundamental to my business, which at that stage was being physically with people in person, then I need to be better at X, Y, and Z. And I needed to be better at technology. I needed to be upgrade my um, infrastructure. I needed to invest in online learning. Uh, I needed to have my website better. I needed to have uh, more digital content being published. You know, it, it kind of made me sharper about the things that I actually probably should have been doing but now I've sort of baked into the business day-to-day. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Mate. Well, now I'd want to really jump into the into the guts of uh, the exciting bit that I've been looking forward to having you chat to you about, and that is the world of ideas and creativity. Yeah. Uh, and let, let's kick it off just, just to, to really underline it, I guess, with how do you define creativity and ideas generation? Right. Well, creativity, I think, is one of those misconceptive things that people think creativity equals arts. You know, traditionally people go, you know, and this is where the problem starts with people going they're not creative, is that people believe that if you are an artist or a musician and like you are, you know, that, or an architect, you know, you, you go, well, they're, they're inverted commas, creative fields, therefore you're creative. Okay, cool, we get that as a society. Oh, so if you're an accountant, you're not creative. Uh, no, haven't you heard of creative accounting? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, so if you're if you're a um, uh, business analyst, you can't be creative. No, you are creative very often as a business analyst. And so we've got this misconception, which again is one of those big myths that starts when we're child. Children is you're either born creative or you're not. And I, and I know you agree with me on this. Is that it's absolute bullshit to say that you're born creative or not. Creativity is a learned skill and we all have it naturally. We are all inherently creative because when we are young, that's how we learn. We, we are creative because we learn language. We are creative because we're given crayons to draw with, blocks to play with, build things out of, and we, we learn to be creative there. And then what happens is we unlearn it, um, unfortunately. And, you know, there's there's some great research and around and some great studies that have been done about creativity and this is my way of answering what it means uh, so I'll, I'll get to the point but no, just, good, just good. humor me for a second so uh, the most famous study of which I think was done by Dr. George Land a guy who did some work for NASA in the 90s and he basically was trying to apply what he called a creativity test like how do we actually how do we actually apply whether people have the creative skill set not whether they're creative or not but whether they have the skill set and um, he basically did a test and the end results were that 98% of five-year-olds were considered at a genius level of creativity on his on his measurement. But by the time it dropped to 10-year-olds, it dropped to 30%. Wow. 15-year-olds, it dropped to 12%. And most alarming at all, adults, people over 18, 2%. So it, li- it had literally swung the other direction. 98% of five-year-olds are considered at a genius level created create of creativity, but only two percent of adults. And it's because it, it what we have to understand about creativity is it's it's worse than being a learned behavior. It's an unlearned behavior. It's something we actually have and can do something with at a very young age. 
and things get in our way. Now, that the major thing that gets in the way, which I touched on earlier, is the school system. Um, you know, we, we're taught conformity at school. We're taught that if you are creative, it's a, it's a badge you wear. Go, oh, that person's very creative. Therefore, we direct you in the school to arts, music, you know. Yep. We direct yep. you away from maths, science, because they're the non-creative subjects, supposedly. <laughs> um, you know, we, again, which is bullshit. But then that happens. So we get sorted. You know, society sorts us into creative versus non-creative. Then when we pop out of school, another peak time where our creative powers are, you know, we're feeling confident. We've got some knowledge. We've got some ability, we, we want to explore and travel and do those things, we again get sorted. Uh, we get sorted into workplaces where someone, you go into a workplace and you're told to sort of sit down and shut up and conform, you know, don't ask questions, don't upset, you know, this this conformity is just killing creativity everywhere. Um, and so I come back to creativity in, in, in a definition sense. Um, yes, there's a non-conformist element to it, but at its absolute essence, Creative thinking is not about right brain or left brain. It's actually a whole brain activity, and then a lot of the recent neuroscience proves that. Yep. Um, cre creativity is to bring anything into existence. Now, I, I, I've created a family by bringing my children into existence. I've created a business by starting one. But I've also created dinner tonight by taking some recipes, taking some ingredients that are in the fridge, and making something of it. That That's a creative act. And the big tragedy is we just do not give ourselves the credit for the creative acts we all undertake every single day. Um, you know, what we chose to wear today is a creative act. Unless there's something that says on this particular date, you must wear X and you must wear Y and you must wear Z, then it's a creative act. Now, you're wearing someone else's creative expression because someone else has designed and manufactured the garment. But the, the ensemble of you putting them together and the fact that you might put a piece of jewellery with it or you might wear a different colour sock or something is a creative act. But we think creative acts are what poets do, artists do and musicians do when they're making up stuff. And that that's absolutely not true. Yeah, I love it. I love that. The, uh, um, and, you know, I see it as a muscle. And uh, if, you yeah. don't, if you don't use a muscle, it just withers and dies on the vine. Well, and that, that's a big example I give to people. So the, the reason why I, I created the Creative Champions course was, and it's full of fitness analogies. It's all about the same way that if you want to get physically fit, right, if you want to do that, you don't sit around and going, well, in this world, there are only people who are physically fit or not. <laughs> you, you know, you know, because again, society has told you that if you want to get fit, you have to start. Now, we, we're not stupid enough to – I can't wake up tomorrow and say I'm going to run the New York Marathon. <laughs> right? I can't do that. But what I do have the ability to do is do what a marathon runner does, which is run. Now, I can't run very well, and I'm not a fitness physical fitness freak at all, but, but I, I know that I, I, I can you, wrap out the journey. I, I'm going I'm to interrupt you there because I, I, I think you snuck me a little exercise to tell me that you actually carried the Sydney Olympic torch at some stage, mate, so you must have been able to do some sort of running. Well, so that was, I did carry the Sydney Olympic torch. I was uh, 24 at the time and uh, I was lucky enough to be nominated as one of the torch bearers. I, I hadn't done anything spectacular. I literally think my name was pulled out of a hat. And, um, <laughs> Love it. and I, uh, I did a very slow jog on a Sunday, cold Sunday morning <laughs> up Portrush Road for anyone who wants an Adelaide <laughs> reference um, and uh, carried the Olympic torch. But it was literally probably 100 metres. So that was the extent of my, <laughs> my athletic ability. <laughs> Sorry, mate. I, I shipwrecked your analogy there, mate. I, I, uh, so going back to that, that sort of marathon approach, uh, yeah, carry on, yeah. mate. My apologies. That's all right. No, no problem. And, and I, 
you know when you when you start on a physical fitness journey, you know that you're not going to be a New York Marathon runner unless you start by walking, unless you turn the walking into jogging, unless you turn the jogging into running, unless you turn the running into running at distance, distance into half marathon, half marathon into full marathon, and then do it for a sustained period, and then you might be at the level where you could complete the marathon, maybe not win it, but complete. So we know this, right? We know this about physical skills, but we, we think that mental skills are different. We think that creative skill is a ta- we think it's a talent that some people have and we don't. Bullshit, absolute myth. So when we get ourselves to go, okay, well, so how are, how are some people more creative? Is that natural ability and talent? It's no more natural and ability and talent than my son who who wants to play cricket for Australia. Now, if he wants to play cricket for Australia, obviously what he has to have is a level of coordination where he can hold a bat. But from that point, the rest is pretty much up to him. And you, yeah. you see this through sporting prodigies, right? You know, we know that Leighton Hewitt was hitting tennis balls when he was 10. We know that Tiger Woods was hitting a 1,000 golf balls a day before he became number one. They put in the work. And what I say to people most of all when they say, listen, I'd like to be more creative, is are you going to put in the work? Because it is a skill. And with any skill, it takes practice. And with more practice, you get better at it. And part of the Creative Champions course is we break down what those skills are. It's not enough to say to people, oh, you can be more creative. Just, you know, don't worry about what people think and just do without fear. Like that that's not good enough. They're just empty messages. We, we show people how to overcome fear. We show people how to make mistakes. We show people how to join what we call the, the three core strengths of creative fitness, which are curiosity, which I meant before, how to get better at being curious about more things, about making connections, which is about seeing patterns that other people don't, looking at things that already exist and putting them together in different and interesting ways. And the third is courage. It's about how do you have the courage to put your ideas into the world, to be to, to be able to accept being rejected because that's a large part of creativity that not a lot of people tell you is it's a lot of rejection, a lot of no's, a lot of um, a lot of things that don't work the first time. We, you know, we see these Steve Jobs type characters and go, oh, well, they're so creative. They, they must have these amazing ideas. But Steve Jobs had a, far more failures than he had successes. And that is true of anyone in in a creative, artistic or business sense. They just don't go around talking about their failures. They just get mythologized around these successes. So the three core strengths are strengths for a reason. You can learn how to build exercises to build those strengths around curiosity, connections and courage. And then you can also learn how to develop and practice those individual techniques that help you build more creative strength. And and that's what I'm all about. I'm all about not saying you're creative and you're not. I'm about saying we all are creative and we need to be able to help you get better at it in the same way that a leadership coach would help leaders be better leaders and a, a personal trainer would help someone who wants to get fit be be better in their fitness and more and healthier and, and look better or whatever reason they're doing it. Creativity is exactly the same and, and part of the work that I do with people is if you're willing to do the work, absolutely, that's great. I can show you the exercises to help build that creative strength. Love it. Well, do you mind sort of digging in a little bit to how you know, and, and give us some tangible examples without without giving away your secret sauce, but uh, of how uh, everyone can start to become more creative? Can you give us some some uh, yeah, actual absolutely. examples there? Yeah, no, no problem at all. And look, I, I have no trouble in in giving away the secret sauce, as you say, because my mission is to help create more creators. You know, more creators mean more interesting a more interesting world. It means that people are living their dreams, creating their dreams, trying things, doing things, 
progressing. You know, I'm all about progress, so I'm I'm more than happy to, to share as much as possible at any time. So let's start with curiosity. Um, you know, how, how do you become more curious? Well, one of the core things that you do is what we've been doing on this podcast is asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it is, again, one of those abilities that we all have, but we've been, it's sort of, it's unlearned. We, we, we're told, you know, in the school example, put up your hand if you want to ask a question. Then, of course, we don't because we don't want to look stupid and get laughed at. So, we, we tend to unlearn how to ask questions. But, you know, I still, to this day, before I go to a meeting, is I write a list of questions out. And it's the simplest thing to do to get curiosity going is to, is, is it's a skill we all have. We, we can, uh, if you can write, you can ask a question. Yeah. Uh, you can certainly write one down. So I actually go, right, what are the questions I want to ask in this meeting? And some of them will be basic rudimentary stuff. You know, it'll be, you know, tell me about this and tell me about that and sort of information gathering. But I'll always make sure I've got what I call a wise up question. And a wise up question is, an exercise that I do with people where it's in order to learn something, in order to wise up, you've got to put the word why at the start of the question. So when you're sitting with someone, as I, I did recently and I was sitting to someone and, and looking at their logo um, and it was a branding sort of project that I was being briefed on yep. um, and a few other people had been briefed on it too and I said, well, look, why is that? Why is your logo blue? And they said, well, no one's really asked that. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm curious. I'm generally curious. Why is it blue? Now, the, the journey of curiosity is to discover, and sometimes you don't know what you're discovering till you ask. Yeah. And I think what what people tend to do with with curiosity that's a bit latent is they go, well, a, I don't want to look stupid by asking questions, so I won't. Or b, that answer is probably going to be irrelevant. Now, the trouble with prejudging the answers is you don't know where it's going till you ask it. Yeah. And I actually got a really interesting answer from this client about blue, why it was blue. That led me to go on a path of, of building a branding strategy that had something to do with that answer. Now, I could have just not asked that question because I could have gone, well, is that really relevant? Who cares? But it was relevant to me, even though I didn't know it was relevant at the time. And and part of the technique about asking wise up questions is if you start putting why at the front of questions, you'll quickly build a broader set of knowledge rather than just factual-based information, rather than just the who, what, where, when. The why gives you some breadth and depth um, even if you can't see what that's going to be. So I, I think, you know, that's a that's a good way to start building curiosity is to ask more questions, first of all, but ask the right kind of questions, not just the open, close, yes, no. Um, you know, it's about trying to trying to build that into your repertoire, no matter which industry you're in or, or who you're talking to. Um, I think that the, the second strength is this area of connections. Um Moving on from curiosity into connections. So connections is is the ability to see patterns, to see things that other people don't. You know, Steve Jobs himself said that creativity is just connecting things. It's just seeing things that other people don't. And, you know, if you, if you were to look at what Apple is, really, he connected up computing with great design. Yeah. You know, computing existed. Like, it existed. It, there was, he didn't invent the personal computer. It was out there. Um, what he did was bring great design to it and, and user-centric functionality. You know, he, he bought those things in because it wasn't really a thing before that. Um, and if you look at any any idea, any any business idea, any industry, any product that's been created, there are there are parts to that idea that have been connected. Um, you know, th there's there's a famous story about um, about the microwave oven being invented, and it wasn't it wasn't about inventing the microwave. Um, Percy Spencer, the guy that actually um, discovered the microwave, 
uh, was fiddling around with some different technology. And when he was fiddling with one particular piece of technology, he noticed he had some candy in his pocket and it melted. And so he noticed that. He, he thought, well, that's a bit strange. When I use that piece of technology that was called the magnetron, you know, the candy melts. That's strange. And then he goes, well, what happens if I put different food in my pocket? And he kept going until he put popcorn and it started popping. And so the microwave oven exists because he connected up pieces of technology that didn't exist before. He didn't create the technology in the same way that, you know, Henry Ford didn't create the car. He took the pieces that were already there. He took things that existed. He took wheels, wheels from wagons. He took um, parts from, you know, horse-drawn carriages. He took other and put it all into a, a different thing. But he didn't. He just connected the pieces. And the, the connecting the pieces bit is the secret sauce, if you like, of of idea generation and creativity and innovation. It's being able to see patterns and exist. So one thing that you can do to help your ability to see connections, to be able to notice things, is to start by writing down things you notice. Again, a lot of this isn't like, you know, amazing revelations. It's just doing the basics. It's, it's the fitness. The, the, the exercise that you do when you're trying to connect more things is to actually write down, not type into your phone, but write down. Yeah things that you notice, carry around a journal, carry around a notebook and write down things that you notice. And you might not know why you're writing things down. You might not be able to see an obvious connection, but what you'll be able to do over time is start going, well, you know, I've written, I've written down um, whiteboard marker and I've written down water bottle. What happens if I try and connect those two things? They're, they're seemingly they have nothing to do with each other. And then you might go, well, hang on a minute. So what could a whiteboard marker and a water bottle have to do with each other? Well, they're both things used by uh, presenters at a whiteboard. You know, they'll probably have a bottle of water nearby and they have a whiteboard. Okay, so if I connected those two things together, what could I get? Well, wh why is it, why can't they be one thing? Why couldn't you have a water bottle that has a whiteboard marker attached to it so you only have to carry one thing? And all of a sudden, you're off on a journey of trying to connect things. Now, not all connections are great first up and not all of them work first up. But again, that's the creative practice. You know, it's called creative practice for a reason. It's the, it's the ability to try and see things that other people can't see and you might find it's a one in a hundred shot, but that one in a hundred connection you've made is a multi-billion idea that no one else saw. You know, Airbnb is a good example of that. Airbnb started because one guy saw the ability to house people at his at his apartment, rent out his apartment a different way. And then he thought, well, hang on, if we do it this way, could we do it in, a, in another way? Could we add these things to it? So all the elements existed. The apartment existed. The ability to have stay, people stay over existed. The bit that it needed to get going was, was, the, was the website, the listing. Okay, well, let's put that together. And so, you know, I don't know what the market value is of Airbnb, but let's say it's in the billions. Yeah. Uh, but because it, it comes from people going, what about if this goes with this? What about if that goes with that? And trying things. So I always say to people, carry around a notebook, you, you, you try and, notice things there's an art to noticing um things that seemingly might be insignificant but write them down anyway and then try and practice the art of connecting and see how you go and, and some of the exercises we do in the course help you with that sort of connections principle and finally courage look courage really comes down to um getting used to rejection getting used to failure because that's a real barrier to creativity you know most of us won't go out and try and paint a painting because we think we can't do it most of us won't try drawing because we think we can't do it. We're not very good at drawing and all those kind of things we talk ourselves down around. But, again, it's a practice thing and there, there are certain techniques you can do to get better at drawing. There's a great book called Draw to Win. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but I read it recently. And there's seven shapes in drawing. Yeah. Learn those seven shapes and you can draw a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's, it, again, but most people go, oh, I can't draw. Okay, so <laughs> let's reframe that. 
Everyone can draw because remember, as a kid, you did a lot of drawings. In fact, your parents might have kept some of them. Now, I'm not saying they're any good or not, but that's not the point. The point is you can draw. So now if you want to get better at drawing, drawing, then learn the techniques of basic drawing structure. The seven shapes in the world that most artists use do that. You know, um, the, the courage aspect is about understanding that it's not as scary as you think and, and trying things and being okay with it not working. And most of us reject creativity, unfortunately, because we just don't think it's for us. Or we don't think we're going to be good at it. But, you know, as with any skill, if you talk yourself out of it from the starting line, then you, the, the only result that's guaranteed is you're, you're going to be absolutely proven correct. If you decide to reframe that and go, listen, I'm, I'm willing to give creativity a go. I'm willing to re-engage that childhood creativity I had. The next step is let's learn some techniques. Let, let's try and get you, show you the exercises that build that fitness. And then you repeat and repeat and repeat and you get better at it. Yeah, I absolutely love that, mate. And it's, you know, I'd, without me consciously thinking about it, uh, uh, everything you've just said there is, is, is stuff that I've probably learned intuitively, I guess. But, uh, you know, I became an architect because I was good at drawing and I only became good at drawing because I was such a, a bad asthmatic when I was a kid. I spent uh, four out of seven days in bed. So my ways of getting through the day was with a pen and coloured pencils in my hand and I just drew and drew and drew and got better and better and better at it mm. uh, and it took years but but all of a sudden I had a really good skill and, and just as you say people were saying oh you're, you're gifted and I'm thinking no I'm not gifted I've just, just done a lot of it uh, and, and the, the other really uh, insightful thing that I picked up from what you mentioned there as well is don't when you're noticing things don't, don't type it on a PC actually mm. do it uh, tactically with a pen in your hand because there's something yep. about the connection between uh, writing something with a pen versus tapping on a keyboard. There's a com oh. completely different level of, of uh, connection that goes yeah. with that. Is I, I, I don't know whether – I'm, I'm just talking here from, from uh, dumb – observation but is there some science around that that you're aware of yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of particularly around neuroscience around this now is that effectively what, what you're trying to replicate are those childhood rituals you know when you think about creativity at its most primal stage so you're you're three years old let's say and you are what are you doing well you're, you're sitting with the instruments in your hand you have blank pieces of paper you have crayons or pencils or something, and you're just basically, well, you know what three-year-old pictures look like. You've got kids that, that don't look like much. They're just kind of like lines on a page and odd shapes and different colours. And, and But you are expressing yourself by getting that rhythm going of the brain to the crayon onto the paper. And same when you've got building blocks, you know, those sort of plastic blocks that you're just making stuff. And, you know, again, it, it's about trying to tap into those as many primal creative activities as possible. Um, so like the workout book that comes with our, our Creative Champions course program uh, is full of spaces to draw in on purpose because it's about not writing stuff down. Now, like you, you do a lot of typing, you do a lot of, you probably do less writing these days, but you do a lot of typing. This is actually about drawing. It's about getting yourself back to those surefire things you do and have done in your life. It's reminding you how that's when you're at your most creative. We're trying to replicate those things. And yeah, the, 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 the having a pen and paper, um, having a, uh, something to draw in, having something to doodle with, it, it's, it's all about replicating those experiences. And the more primal you are with those, the more tactile you are, the more using your fingers and hands to, to paint, to draw, to write, um, 
you know, that musicians are good at this, you know, just kind of tinkering with the keys and doing that, like all that sort of stuff, the tactile helps boost creativity immensely compared to the scrolling, the tapping of the thumbs, um, albeit that, you know, phones are a great creative tool in themselves, but the way we use them is pretty mindless. Um, it's about just being active and, and present with the way you go about it as well. Mm, I love that. I, what about the, I, I like to call this a top-down moonshot style of approach where rather than start from the bottom and work something up, and let's take the architectural example because that's one that I'm very familiar with. Uh, you get some architects that will take a functional brief from someone and it says, you know, we need this room, we need that room, and, and then you start patching these together like cells and all of a sudden the building falls out of it. That's what I call the bottom-up approach where you sort of iterate versus the opposite approach, which is, you know, let, let's take the Sydney Opera House as the example, where he had a vision of how the thing was going to look. So he started mm. with the end in mind and then made the building work within the con the confines of the of the uh, sculptural shapes that he'd already uh, come up with in his head. Yeah. Uh, and I guess what I'm leading to there, that there's no one way of creating. You can you can do the the top down, uh, start with the end in mind, you, or you can start from the bottom up and, and build something up. All of them are creative, and all of them are going to create really good solutions. Uh, there's there's not one formula. Is that am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. And, and you know, creativity is is a quantity game. You know, we we try and we try and convince ourselves it's a quality game because we we as consumers see the end result of creativity. We see the brilliant movie um, that was made. We see the we see the he go to the brilliant concert from the musician. We see the the painting at at the gallery and go, wow, that's a beautiful piece of art. But but what is missing is the sweat and the toil and the mistakes. Um, and the sweat and the toil and the mistakes are essential and they are there in every creative aspect and every creative process. And, you know, da Vinci himself painted the Mona Lisa over a number of years. In fact, he actually stopped painting it uh, during the process for, for years. I think he spent like four years doing it, stopped for two, went back to it for two. And we look at it now and go, oh, it's magnificent. Yeah, but he, he didn't, at a point of that journey, imagine it, over seven or eight years, he hated it. He didn't like it. He changed it. He thought it was wrong. And if all of those things had stopped him, we wouldn't have the Mona Lisa. And what tends to happen is people give up. They stop too quickly. Um, you know, Im imagine if if the, uh, in terms of the architecture of the, the Sydney Opera House, I mean, someone along the line could have easily said, this is going to look ridiculous, don't do it. I mean, and they probably did. And, and they probably had um, times where, the government who were commissioning the work thought this guy's a lunatic. What's yeah. he doing? And and they're not. And, and you know. And I, I, I'm not as au fait with the architectural story of the opera house as you are. But I know enough to know there would be detractors and there would be people complaining. And what this guy had the permission to do was be creative, and he had the permission to push ahead with a vision. And the vision now is one of the that is one of the um, the wonders of the world, right? So you look at it and go, well, that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't have happened if the person had created restrictions or license or either put on by others or probably most importantly put on by themselves. If they just completed the brief, then it, they're just spitting out, you know, average work or what the work could look like. Um, sorry, would look like. But what it could look like is possibility and imagination. And, and one of the core principles we kind of talk about in creativity is this balance between possibility and probability. And... What tends to happen with a lot of people is they they enter a creative process with probability, like, oh, 
we could come up with a really good idea for that client, but it pro they'll probably say no. Um, we could come up with this really amazing product, but it's probably going to cost too much. <laughs> but the possibility angle encourages you to explore what is able to be done. And what is able to be done is limitless if you allow yourself to do that. Well, it's possible that we could create um, you know, this. It's possible we could do that. And then it becomes about a process of evaluation once you get further down the line, but you can't kill off um, things too soon. You have to let the possibility have its time in the sun before you get to the probability. But I tend to find where, you know, if I'm if I'm working with a business and they come in and say, help us as a team be more creative, help our creative problem-solving abilities, help our innovation output, uh, most roads lead back to that they're a probable-leaning business rather than a possible-leaning business. And the probable-leaning business is one that evaluates things too quickly. Of course, we have to evaluate at a point. We have to work out, is our investment worth it? Is the time worth it? Are we happy for it to fail? You go through all those normal processes in any innovation or R&D bent. But yeah. the, the, the number one thing I always find is that they're killing off the possible too early. The possible has to have time to run around and, and enjoy itself um, and see where it could go, you know, before you get into the probable, the inevitable probable, which you do have to do, but just don't do it too early. Well, it's it's killing the child within. That's 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 exactly what we do. Well, and that's the parallel, isn't it, Bushy? I mean, that that's the parallel from our conversation today. That that that's the absolute bookends. Is children deal in possible? You know, possibility for kids is they can draw a heap of rubbish on a page and it doesn't matter. <laughs> they can draw lines and shapes and things that don't make any sense and whatever. They can use building blocks to build a building that will fall over and it doesn't matter. It's all possibility. Everything's possible. And then as you get to school and as you go through life, probable starts to, to rear its head and there's absolutely a place for it. But, yeah, whether it's in business or childhood and life, you know, enjoy the possible. The possible is where all the fun is. The possible is where the, um, the dreams can be made. And, you know, you do have to wake up from the dream and get it made. But if you don't dream first, then you're just going to churn out the same stuff that everyone else does. And, yeah, you know, I always think the best thing – People say to you, what's the best thing you've created? And I say, my life. Yeah. You know, you, you, we are all creating our lives every single day. You know, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And I love the fact to know that I'm creating my life. Um, you said earlier about me living on the peninsula and creating a, you know, a good sustained balance. Love that. You know, creating a family, creating our memories together. You know, the biggest thing we ever create, all of us, no matter how we see our creative abilities in our lives, is our lives. And the fact that you can put time and attention into that, it makes the, the journey rewarding. Absolutely. Love that, mate. You're singing my language. That's uh, uh, nailed it perfectly. And uh, uh, time's flashed past very quickly uh, and we're still only skating across the surface of the, the whole subject of creativity. So I'm going to sort of park the opportunity to have you back at some stage to sort of drill a bit deeper in that. Absolutely. But, uh, mate, I'd love to transition into what I like to refer to as the ambush uh, bushfire lightning <laughs> round, which is just five quick questions that that uh, the listeners always want to glean your words of wisdom on. And sure. you, you've given us a couple of these already, but what's your favourite quote and why? Well, I mentioned earlier that sort of my mantra is if you don't ask, you don't get. And, and my favourite quote actually is sort of based in that philosophy. Uh, and it's a Leonardo da Vinci quote. Uh, and it's he says that it long came to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them, 
they went out and happened to things. And I think the notion of going out and happening to things rather than letting things happen to you is is why it's my favourite quote. Love it. Love it. And it's one I, I'm, I'm a massive Da Vinci fan and I haven't actually heard that one. So uh, love that, mate. Thank you. Uh, what about a top book that you'd recommend uh, the listeners have a read of and why? Well, there's a, I've got a massive library of creative books, um, books around creative theory and practice and creativity and storytelling and behavioural psychology and all the things that go into the world of creativity. But there's one that I give as a gift quite often to people, and I'll actually send you a copy to say thank you for this interview today, awesome. um, is a book called Made to Stick. And Made to Stick is a book by a couple of American guys called Chip and Dan Heath. Um, they couldn't sound more American if they tried by <laughs> calling themselves Chip and Dan, but uh, trust me, they're not squirrels. They're actually real people. Uh, I've seen them. Um, Chip and Dan Heath and and Made to Stick basically is a is a study of why some ideas stick and why some die. Um, and what they mean by stick is, is how they live in people's minds. Um, everything from business ideas to marketing ideas to to um, urban myths they cover. There's a wide range of stuff that they do in a very entertaining storytelling way. Um, and it really gives you some practical working principles on how to make any idea stickier, how to make it more memorable, how to make it more successful, how to make it more simple. Um, Love yeah, it. I, it's, I, it's a great book. So, yeah, Made to Stick is the book. You got me excited now, mate. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll shout your copy somewhere uh, down on the uh, peninsula. Uh, Happy to hand it over at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, uh, now this one's a little bit left field, but it's uh, just about all Aussies believe and feel that they pay too much tax. So what's the mm. top legal thing that you've done to minimise the tax that you pay, mate? Well, I, I'm, this is a great question, actually, because it was probably the question I was the most naive about when I started my business because I was a, I was a regular PAYG taxpayer for such a long time. I just didn't really think about it. You know, I was the, I was the H&R Block guy, right? You know, I just <laughs> would trundle up to H&R Block, um, you know, once a year and get them to do all the stuff and hopefully I got some money back and that was the end of that. So when I started my business, uh, one person actually said to me, there's two things you have to do. You have to get a good accountant you yep. absolutely have to get a good accountant yep. uh, because the money you, you you you'll pay them a bit, but you'll absolutely they'll they'll earn their money for you and they'll help you. And I I did that. I've got a great accountant um, in Melbourne that I love and, and trust very much, and she's she's amazing. Um, and um, the the second thing is um, the structure of my business is a is a family trust. It's a discretionary trust, um, which gave me flexibility when I started the business to be able to. Um, obviously, you know, maximise my tax arrangements, but also gave me the ability to reinvest in the business at a time that I needed to, to you know, boost marketing and boost profile and, and not have to worry about some immediate sort of tax burdens and all the other things that go with that. And obviously, you know, in, in the world of trust, there's lots of things you can do to help um, legally minimise your tax. So I take advantage of that. Yeah, love it. Now, this one's uh, probably going to be more about your future to some degree than than the past, but if you could share with us what you consider to be the, both the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've ever received today. Um, probably it, it, the result, it relates to the same thing, um, which is debt. Um, yeah. I I got into a pretty bad credit card habit in my 20s. I was, a, you know, I think I've 
hopefully shown my true colours here today that I was a pretty confident kind of guy. I was earning money pretty early, uh, working pretty hard. So I, I kind of like things to happen now. So I didn't want to wait. I, did, I wasn't a saver. Um, still aren't a saver, really. I'm, I'm more of a spender than a saver. So <laughs> so the, the worst thing, I think, was someone actually said to me, you know, oh, just get a credit card, just get a $1,000 limit, you'll be fine. And before you know it, the $1,000 limit turns into a you know $10,000 limit, turns into a $20,000 limit, and then you're off to the races, obviously, in terms of debt. So, um, you know, that um, – so, so in terms of best and worst, the worst was get a credit card. The best was pay off your debt and um, yeah. have have now. And it was a long journey, and I, I would even just probably vomit on this podcast thinking about how many – dollars I spent in interest. But, um, you know, the best advice was get rid of that debt as quickly as you can. And and so from an investment perspective, it's probably more around how I manage my money um, and having some bad habits in the 20s and 30s has kind of turned around now into being better in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, love it. And final question that the series made is what, what's a, a personal habit or rewarding ritual or a daily discipline that you believe contributes most to your success today? Well, I would say that um, I don't like people who deprive themselves. I think that if you if you my my mantra is like there's a lot of people that avoid hot chips, right? <laughs> because they're too they're too fattening. And, I love and them. I, just, I love oh, them, mate. I, and and also I say to my kids, have you ever met anyone on planet Earth that doesn't like hot chips? Um, now there are people who try and avoid them for health reasons and try and avoid them because they're too fattening and yada yada. But I think there's a there's a depth. Uh, depriving or depravity around not indulging in things you enjoy. And so for me, when it, to, in, in thinking of this question in the context of investment success or success and, and habits, I don't, I don't look to deprive. I look to reward. I look to, you know, I, I feel like I've had a good week. I've, I've bought in a new client. I've done some great work. I'm going to go and buy that pair of shoes, you know, because that, that's what I want to do. Um, or I'm going to go off to the footy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to enjoy this. You know, we're going to fly business class instead of economy. We're getting, like whatever that might be. I, I'm, I'm a person who likes to think about the, the, the habit of reward yep. for effort. Um, for me personally, encourages me to work harder and do better. Um, if, if you just constantly are saving up for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, I feel like sometimes you don't get the short-term dopamine hit of enjoyment. You yeah. just go, oh, well, yeah, I'm saving it all for a rainy day. Well, save some for a rainy day, but don't you want to enjoy it? I mean, I, yeah. I had a, a family member who passed away in, in the last decade or so who really lived quite miserly towards the end and then when they, when they died, they left behind a, a decent inheritance to some people and I just thought, God, what, what a weird way to live your life. You work your guts out. You're saving, you're saving, you're saving. You live in a house where the kitchen's run down and it's cold. You can't. You don't want to even put a heater in. You don't want to pay for that. And then all of a sudden you're kind of just handing it on. I just, I've just never understood that principle. So, look, I, I know I can be better at saving and investment. And I think that's something I'm learning uh, and getting better at. But I'm also – my habit is to reward effort Um Small efforts, small rewards, big efforts, big rewards. Make sure that you are enjoying the journey because we're not here for long. Totally agree with that. And, and, and you, you hit a, a very salient point. Uh, if, if you're 
investing or putting energy into anything, you should be celebrating the wins. Uh, otherwise, what are you doing it for? It just doesn't. Yeah, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Doesn't make any sense. No, no love that. Okay, well, this sort of shifts us nicely into uh, the sort of summarising question, mate. Uh, if I gave you a microphone that spoke to every single one of the 7.7 or 8 billion odd people that are currently alive in the world today and I gave you a minute to talk, what would you say? Well, I would start by saying to people that you are creative. I mean, that, that that's the mantra that you have to understand is that every single one of us on the planet, all 7.8 billion of us are creative. So the first thing you've got to do is say it to yourself, say it out loud. Bushy, you can say it to yourself out loud now if you like. Are you I am, creative? I am absolutely creative, mate. Excellent. And and I think that it, when you say it, it gives you that nice warm feeling inside to go, well, hang on a minute, maybe I could be. You know, you give yourself permission to entertain the thought. And when you entertain the thought, that's when opportunity starts to open up. And just like with the physical fitness uh, examples we've been discussing is that once you make a decision to go for that walk, you can then build on that. So once you start by saying, look, I am creative, uh, it's about, right, well, how am I going to deploy that creativity? And part of it is rewarding and validating those everyday acts of creativity you do now, which could be anything from cooking to gardening to choosing a different direction to drive home. That's a creative act, validating those acts. Then building on that and going, what else can I do that's creative? What do I want to do? What dreams do I have? How can creativity bring those to life? Um, and and learning techniques, reading, being curious, looking for patterns in things, making connections, showing courage and not being afraid to make mistakes because we all do and we all have, then it's about embracing that creativity can really be the thing that helps you uh, create your best life. Absolutely beautifully said, mate. And uh, it is the, for me, creativity is the, the start and the finish of it. Uh, everything starts there. Uh, and anyone who's achieved any form of success has done that through their own creativity and then and using exactly those core strengths that you've talked about, the uh, fostering the curiosity, uh, extending the connections and drawing connections and having the courage to see it through regardless of the rejection. Absolutely beautifully said, mate, and uh, a, a great way to uh, really, as you said earlier, reframe the way we look at the world so we can start to see it as a land of opportunity, not of not as a land of problems. Mate, Absolutely. Love, love your time. Uh, really appreciate you've been very generous with us, mate. Uh, for those that are excited about wanting to uh, reignite their latent creativity that they've uh, you know, allowed dust to collect on over the years, uh, how, how can they engage with you to, um, to start that catalyst? Well, the, the best thing uh, I'd always encourage people to do is, is check out creativechampionscourse.com. Uh, on creativechampionscourse.com is the details about our course um, and also we've got options on there for coaching sessions. I, I do one-to-one -one coaching sessions virtually, in person, um, everything these days. And um, we also have our, our e-learning program there which people can sign up to. But Creative Champions course is what it's about. Um, if you want to look me up on LinkedIn, I do publish a lot of thoughts and articles and stuff on LinkedIn. I'm just simply Wade Kingsley, W-A-D-E-K-I-N-G-S-L-E-Y. Um, and um, I love conversations about stuff. So anytime there's a chance to debate, discuss um, anything you want to talk about, count me in. I'm, I'm always up for I always say yes, Bushy. I'm, I'm not a no person. I'm a yes person. <laughs> love that, mate. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, in, encourage um, everyone to uh, really reignite their 
creative juice because it's it's all there within us. Uh, you've really motivated us and inspired with us with that today, mate. And uh, appreciate you spending time on on uh, getting invested. Thanks, Bushy. Look forward to our coffee. Get on your way. Talk soon. Thanks, mate. See you later. Get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes. Just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. It's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au. Or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you live forever and live as if you die.